says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach to it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three-day journey in extent. And Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's walk. Then he cried out and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So the people of Nineveh believed God, proclaimed a fast, and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. Then word came to the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne and laid aside his robe and covered himself with sackcloth and satin ashes. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily to God. Yes, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who can tell if God will turn and relent and turn away from his fierce anger so that we may not perish? And then God saw their works that they turned from their evil way and God relented from the disaster that he had said that he would bring upon them and he did not do it. And Father, we humbly ask now, help us to continue in our worship by the submission of our heart and our mind, our soul and spirit to the truth and the authority of your word. Lord, may every reason behind the intent of your spirit inspiring these very words find its proper place in my and each and every one of our hearts this morning. Speak to us, Lord, through your living and powerful word. We ask that we would hear now the ministry of your spirit and his voice speaking to our hearts what we need to hear you say to us as individuals and as a congregation collectively. Bless your word, we ask. In Jesus' name we pray together and everyone said, Amen, Amen. You may be seated. You know, I'm convinced that God loves to see lives change and especially as well that God especially loves when he sees people make a personal decision. To change That is when they actually choose to live differently. And I think that's because God as well always honors repentance. And again, when we say the word repentance or repent, what we're talking about is when a person, because they have free will, has a change of mind or a change of heart that leads to a change of how they live. And they actually choose to live a different way. And God finds pleasure, I believe, because of who he is, God finds pleasure in extending to people a second chance. Even after great failures, even after maybe some of the worst mistakes, and we all make our fair share of mistakes in this life, and even after the greatest amounts of failure, God loves to extend a second chance. And this passage this morning is a great illustration of that. It would be fitting to just take a moment again, especially in light of the narrative we're looking at in Jonah, to remind ourselves of, of how we get to chapter 3. Jonah, remember, was serving as a prophet of God. He was speaking messages on God's behalf, and yet one day God spoke to Jonah because of his concern for the people of Nineveh, this pagan Assyrian city that were known 
for barbaric practices of cruelty, great violence, even as we read in our chapter here this morning, and, and great evil in their ways. They were people who know nothing of God, and they were quite evil in their conduct as a society, and their wickedness had kind of reached the full measure of what God could tolerate. And God was going to have to bring judgment against them. But God in his heart moved with compassion and mercy for the souls of the people, spoke to Jonah and said, look, I want you to rise and I want you to go to Nineveh and I want you to speak to them my words because God wanted to be able to give them a chance to change their ways that he might be merciful to them. Well, Jonah hearing this wasn't too thrilled about the idea of God being nice to the Assyrian people. And so Jonah, remember, rather than go and obediently proclaim God's word to them, Jonah refuses this assignment and it says he heads basically 1,200 miles in the opposite direction. He finds a ship heading towards Tarshish, the opposite way that he could possibly go in every manner. He goes into the ship and God's not going to allow his disobedience of this situation. So God sends a great storm upon the waters. He's trying to do everything he can to convince Jonah to, to repent and to humble himself and change his direction. And Jonah was so stubborn and not wanting to listen to what God asked him to do. Jonah ultimately, when he gets flushed out as the one who caused the storm among all these people on board with him who are desperately trying to survive in the storm, Jonah says, look, just throw me in of the water and everything will go calm this is all my fault anyway and he's willing as we said to basically die rather than to obey God's will for his life that's how stubborn he was at this point he's tossed into the water ultimately because they could not find any other way to survive they toss him overboard but it says the Lord prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah and so God miraculously and mercifully spares Jonah's life and then Jonah as we saw last time spent three days Three full days in the misery of the belly of this great fish swamped with no doubt gastric juices and who knows what seaweed around his head. I mean, it must have been utter misery and motion sickness and you name it. It took three days for him finally to come to a place where he then humbles himself and repents and cries out and prays for God's mercy and sort of has a change of heart. And at the moment of his repentance, chapter 2, verse 10 says, So the Lord then spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out back onto dry land. Now, you might expect then to read chapter 3, verse 1. And God said to Jonah, Be thankful that I spared your life. But given the fact of your incredible disobedience, of your complete stubborn rebellion and personal failure and stubbornness to not want to change, you have forsaken all opportunity to ever serve me again. And, and you are spared, but you're worthless. And you've been pardoned and I've kept you alive, but the rest of your life is worth nothing other than to just breathe some oxygen and die a useless individual. You might expect God to say something like that. However... Look instead what it says in verse 1 there of chapter 3. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach to it the message that I tell you. Notice, despite Jonah's personal failure, his disobedience, and then on top of that, his prideful stubbornness to, to just do everything he can to still hold out from doing God's will, after Jonah humbled himself and repented, 
God extends to Jonah a second chance. It says there that the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. A second time issuing the exact same command as the first time before his failure. How merciful and gracious that God, after all that Jonah did wrong, all the mistakes that he had made, and even the stubborn, rebellious, and stiff-necked attitude that God graciously offers Jonah a second chance, a second time. The same message comes to him once again. This reveals the nature of God, that God is great in mercy, that God is slow to anger and he enjoys being gracious, that he is a God, you could say, of second chances. He's a God of second chances. When people fail the first time around, whether it's just in life generally, and we just, you know, our first shot at life, we just, well, I know I did. I just made a mess. I got saved right after I graduated high school and I spent the first 18, 17, 18 years of my life at the steering wheel, kind of thinking I'm going to do it my way. And all I found when I was behind the steering wheel was I crashed into a lot of different things and caused a bunch of damage and was a pretty you know, dangerous individual and destructive. And my life was not heading in a direction that would have ultimately been. And, and ultimately, I was basically just making a mess of my life generally and was failing routinely and repeatedly and conscious of that and seeing the reality of it. So whether it's when we just fail in life generally or after some area maybe of personal disobedience to God or we don't follow God's will or, or maybe we make some poor choices, the Lord does not write people off. After the first time when we fail, the first time around, he doesn't cast us aside as a forever failure as a worthless cause, he continues to faithfully work in our lives after failure and to continue to do everything he can to work in our lives to see us turn things around because God wants to turn us around. God wants to take us sometimes even when we're at our worst or at our lowest because often then that's when we're the most humble and perhaps teachable and receptive and God wants us to learn from our mistake and he gives us a second chance to make things right. And to do better the second time around and to, to do things the right way in our next attempt. And we see examples of this all throughout Scripture. Abraham failed God. And yet God gave him a second chance and let him go back and do things the right way after he had done things the wrong way the first time. Jacob wrestled with the Lord and God literally had to bring him to a place of personal submission to where he ultimately is then renamed Israel, which means then governed by God. We read of others in the Bible, same thing. Moses failed at his first attempt to do God's will and follow God's calling, and yet God gave him a second chance to do God's will and to follow God's calling. David, we've been seeing on Wednesday nights in our study in 2 Samuel, failed miserably, but God gave him another chance, and God still used David in his life despite his great failures. As well, probably one of the greatest examples we think of about God giving second chances, certainly in the New Testament, Peter. I mean, Peter was known so many times to step outside of God's will to say something foolish or make mistakes. He denied the Lord greatly, remember, and yet Jesus mercifully extended to Peter a second chance and used Peter incredibly in the early church. Remember when Peter failed, Jesus said to him in light of his failure, he said to Peter, when you return... 
strengthen your brethren. He didn't say if you return. He said, Peter, when you return from this failure and this faltering experience, I want you to strengthen your brethren. In other words, I think Jesus was saying to Peter, Peter, you know what? You're going to be my minister to failures. And Peter, I'm going to use your failure and the pain and the tears and the hardship and the humiliation that comes with that. Because I'll tell you something. If you blew it in the early church, you probably felt comfortable talking to Peter about it. Because Peter could relate. And so Peter became a very useful instrument to help others who've gone through failures to encourage and insist them because God is a God of the second chance. And I want to say this morning, perhaps in your past, you failed greatly. Perhaps in maybe the recent season of your life, maybe you failed greatly, you've disobeyed God. And maybe at this point, you've humbly confessed your sin and mistake. You've repented and changed and turned away from that. But maybe you still struggle with wondering how God feels about you. Well, let me help you this morning to liberate and assure you he wants to give you a second chance. That's how God feels about you. He wants to give you a second chance. He's willing to let you try a second time. And I encourage you, despite what your mind may be saying or your feelings are communicating, that you believe by faith that God wants to give you a second chance, that he still wants to offer you another opportunity. The world may not be merciful and gracious, but don't translate that to God because God is. The Lord is very merciful. Micah 7, God says to Israel after a time of great failure, it says God does not retain his anger forever because he delights in mercy and he will again have compassion on us. So not only do we learn that God gives second chances, but we also learn from verses 1 and 2 that God, notice in verse 2, does not alter his plan or his will and God does not alter his word as well to accommodate human disobedience. And that's an important thing to see because you notice God's desire and will and God's word remained exactly the same. The word of the Lord comes to Jonah a second time and notice what God says. Sounds pretty familiar, I'm sure, to Jonah. Arise, and here it comes, go to Nineveh, that great city, preach to it the message that I tell you. Do you notice God does not alter his will? God does not alter his plan. God does not alter his word to accommodate human disobedience. He takes Jonah right back to the starting gate and he says, okay, Jonah, let's try this a second time. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach to it the message that I tell. And God takes him right back to the same spot and he shows Jonah, though he's compassionate, he also shows Jonah that he's God. And he says, Jonah, I'm not changing here. One of us needs to change. It's not going to be me. I'm God. I'm creator here. So he shows Jonah that he's not going to change. It would be Jonah who must submit to God's authority and change his mind and heart. He must accept that God's will was what it was and God wasn't going to change what his will was. God would not change his word. Jonah needed to embrace God's word and to submit himself to God's will and word because God's word and God's will, ladies and gentlemen, does not change. It, it doesn't change. I appreciate that God's that firm. I appreciate that God's not insecure. He's not questioning himself. 
He's very confident in who he is and what he means and what he wants. And, and it's we who must change our minds. We must change our hearts at times and submit to God. That's an important reality, truly, for all of us to remember and really come to terms with. That God in who he is and his nature and his ways is unchanging. God says in the book of Malachi, I, the Lord God, change not. We may try and tweak this or tweak that or moral values or try and switch. And, and listen, God doesn't change. What God says he is, God will always be. God's thoughts and attitudes towards marriage, toward humanity, it doesn't change. No matter how much people want it to change, God's not going to change. He's been good and holy and wholesome from the beginning before creation ever happened. And he's thoroughly confident that he is right and he is who he is. And his will's not going to change. And what God wants and what God's will is is not going to be altered because human beings rebel or don't cooperate and sometimes people tend to think well if we just don't cooperate and we're going to force and press the issue that somehow like god's going to someday all right well that many of you want your way as just somehow he's going to because we don't cooperate in humanity that his will is going to change or his plan's not going to come to pass that's never going to be the case and god's word does not change his written inspired word psalm 119 verse 89 says forever o lord your word is settled in heaven. It's settled. God's word will not change because it has an eternal quality to it. And, and he says, your word is settled. What God's word says, it will always say it's unalterable. So we can't twist it. We can't say that's not culturally relevant or it doesn't accommodate my preferences or feelings or desires. His word is his word. We are to submit ourselves to the authority of the word of God. And to realize that it will never change. That's why God says to Jonah here the exact same word of the Lord that he got the first time. Arise, go and preach to Nineveh the message notice that I tell you. Uh, we see there again why it's important for Jonah and really for all of us as God's servants that we never ever try and alter God's message. Do you see what God's saying to Jonah? Preach to it the message that I tell you. Don't go there with your own idea, Jonah. You preach to them the message that I tell you. He wasn't to evaluate God's word or message and then edit or adjust it to what he thought perhaps might be a little more user-friendly for the Ninevites or maybe it might be a little more palatable for them to listen to or easier to accept. He wasn't to remove certain things that you know, might seem a little bit difficult to swallow or to hear because it might challenge. He wasn't to do anything. He wasn't to add extra ideas in. That, well, maybe if I add this idea in there too, that might be a little more interesting. And so if I just add a little extra something into there, then maybe perhaps there'll be a little bit more interest. He was to faithfully proclaim and preach what God told him to say. He was to preach the message that God gave to him because the power and the impact of the message is found in the fact that it's God's word and not man's. And this is why it is so, so important that we be careful as human beings and God's messengers here on this earth that we never alter the message of God. Whether that be the message of salvation, the gospel message, if we're going to share the gospel with people, we need to share the genuine biblical gospel. That people are sinful. That people deserve 
eternal damnation and judgment for their sin. Whether they failed one time or the biggest failure from their perspective, that that's the reality. And listen, if you don't hear the bad news, what do you need good news for? People need to know they need to be saved. Why would you want to ask Jesus to save you if you don't feel you need to be saved? When I ask Jesus Christ to come into my life and to be my Savior and my Lord, it wasn't because I felt, well, maybe Jesus could help me do life a little better. It was because I sensed the reality of what my own sin was doing to my life. And I sensed that I was a sinner before a holy, righteous God. And I was afraid if I died, I was going to hell. But I heard that there was a God that loved me and sent his son Jesus to live righteously in a way that I couldn't, to perfect what I could never perform, and then that Jesus died in my place on the cross, and that he took my punishment for my sin, and he died and bled out his blood into the earth so that I could be washed and forgiven. And he rose from the dead so that as a living Savior, he could forgive me and come into my life and give me the power to have a relationship with God and have an experience with God and have the gift of eternal life. And, and when we share the message of salvation, we need to share, never altered, but preach the message of salvation, the gospel that God has given to us. And so whether it's God's word or listen, even if it's maybe a prophetic word, God gives you something like Jonah to go share with a person. Maybe God truly gives you a word to go share with someone. We simply want to be like waiters in a restaurant. We never want to alter the message. We want to share what God's told us to share. And just like a waiter or a waitress in a restaurant, all they do is they faithfully deliver what has been prepared. Paul said, that which I receive from the Lord, I deliver unto you. And when we speak on God's behalf, that's what we want to do. Like a waiter, you know, you don't want to put your thumb in the food. You don't want to spill it. You don't want to tell the, well, let me, I mean, you need a little more spice in there. I mean, you, you don't do that. You just pick it up and you deliver it. And when God wants to use you to speak to people, then God wants to use all of you to speak to people. Your role is, is simple. Lord, I just want to be a waiter. I just want to, I want to deliver that which you've received, I've received from you and just faithfully share it, whether it's conveying the simple truths of the gospel or it's sharing what the word of God does say and not what it doesn't say, or whether it's maybe just sharing a timely word with someone that, that we would just arise and go speak what God says and leave the rest and the results to the Lord. Because if we do anything different, we can potentially get in the way and hinder God's word. And we don't want to do that. So Jonah's told, go, speak the message that I tell you. Verse three, so Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Notice Jonah does now the exact opposite of last time God gave him a command. And the exact opposite is this. Jonah this time obeys the Lord. By faith, he submits himself and he goes and does what God asks him to. He still doesn't have all the details, but he simply does what God directs him. And notice the very obvious change that has happened as a result of Jonah repenting. This is how we can tell he truly repented in chapter 2. Because we see now his repentance is evident and measurable in that he what? Lived differently. He changed directions. He does the opposite. He was once disobedient to God's word and God's voice. Now he is obeying God's voice and he's obeying God's word. And repentance always brings a change of the direction of our life. It's impossible, you might say, impossible to not see genuine repentance. 
because it's outwardly observable. A person who was once going north turns around and they go south. A person who was once going one direction and doing what was wrong turns around and does what's right. It's a 180 degree turn that's evident. Second Corinthians 7 says that godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation. Not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. And he says this regarding what repentance looks like. For observe this very thing, that you sorrowed in a godly manner what diligence it produced in you, what clearing of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, and what vehement desire, what zeal, what vindication. In all things, you proved yourselves to be clear in this matter. Notice the description of repentance. It's represented by diligent, zealous action to do the opposite of what you were once doing. And he says, you proved yourself to be clear. The repentance was evident as Paul was writing to the Corinthian church. It was something that was seen. And we see here Jonah now doing what was evident that he's changed. Verse 3 goes on to say that he not only goes there, but it says Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three-day journey. Now, it says a, an exceedingly great city, a large city. Archaeologists tell us that, that Nineveh had huge outer and inward walls, multiple towers, that it was this massive city. It's interesting, here we get this little note that it was a three-day journey in extent. Now, just for frame of reference, the idea, a three-day walk to go from city limit to city limit in the other direction you know, that's quite large. The average human being walks about three miles per hour. So if you just think about that, let's say Jonah only walked 10 hours a day, only at three miles an hour. Well, that's 30 miles in a day times three days. That's 90 miles across. That's larger than Philadelphia. That's larger than all the boroughs of New York City. So you get an idea. I mean, this truly was an exceedingly great city and not only that, but the wickedness that was contained within this, you know, urban, highly advanced city here, Jonah, think about this, one man all by himself on foot without a team or technology walks into this urban location known for great wickedness, tremendous violence, a very dangerous place and it says in verse 4, he walks in and began to enter the city on the first day and cried out, look at this, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Jonah enters the city and he utters a message. I would say he's not exactly trying to win friends and influence people. He walks into this dangerous, violent, you know, urban city and he cries out a message of warning of God's judgment. He says, God declares that you have 40 days and then everyone in this city is going to be overthrown by God's destruction. My question, is that all he said? Was that the message right there? I mean, we truly don't know. There's no more explanation told to us. Jonah tells us as he's recording his testimony here, this is what I declared. And remember, God told him to preach the message that he told him. So was that it, that one statement? Or did he give other explanation? Was that just a primary point? Either way, again, if you look at verse 4, at first glance, that message, to me anyway, would not look like it's going to be very successful 
in a city like Nineveh. Uh, that, that message that he declares in a society like that with wicked, violent people, I would think either A, you're going to be laughed at and ridiculed, or B, you're going to get beat up really bad. Maybe even worse, that you walk into a city like that and you make a proclamation. Yet remember, it's that proclamation the entirety of the story shows us. It's that very simple message from God that actually brings a major spiritual breakthrough. And this very simplistic message that God uses sparks a major wave of repentance in this wicked city, causes a widespread turning, we read in the text, from their evil practices, from their sinful lifestyles. Just one little spark sets the whole city on fire spiritually. And it reminds us of a few things. That when God wants to speak to people that he's prepared it doesn't take a whole lot of words. God doesn't need a whole lot of words to convince people. When God wants to speak to people and he's prepared them, all God needs is a few words to powerfully bring a breakthrough in a human heart. I look at the Gospels and sometimes I'm, I'm amazed at Jesus. Jesus at times, again, being God in the flesh with the authority of God would speak to people with two words. And he would look at people and he would say, follow me and people would get up leave everything in their life and follow jesus but you know i'll tell you i i think of experiences with the lord when jesus says to you you it's you now follow me you haven't been following me follow me and when jesus says that to a heart the power to bring the breakthrough of the most hardened heart can happen incredibly. We could say 2,000 words to a person with our own mouths and nothing will happen. But if Jesus says those two words to a human being and they hear the Lord speaking to them, the power of a breakthrough is incredible. And here this is astonishing. The message Jonah preaches, but the power to reach people and change lives is in the fact that it's God's message. That's why Paul says in Romans 1, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it. The gospel message is the power of God unto salvation. When Paul goes to the Corinthians, he preaches there. And in 1 Corinthians 2, Paul says that when he came to them, he said, I didn't come with excellence of speech or wisdom declaring to you the testimony of God. He says, I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and power that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So Paul says, when I came to Corinth, this place that was known for eloquent oration, I mean, they had philosophers and they were into wisdom and people could just speak in such charismatic ways, just golden-tongued orders. And Paul came bumbling into the city and Paul says, I, I was terrified. My knees were knocking. I was stumbling over my words. I was saying things. And, and Paul says, but it was not my eloquent speech, speech. It was the power of God that God was speaking as I was just simply sharing God's truth. And, and what a wonderful thing to realize that God doesn't need eloquence. God needs availability. That we would just be an instrument that we would say, here am I, Lord, send me. You know, the, the, the Spirit of the Lord would speak by us. And God wanted to work. And think about this truly. God wanted to work and he did it despite Jonah's shortcomings. 
Think about this. I mean, the, the massive breakthrough that happens in this city that we read about in the latter part of these verses, it didn't happen because Jonah was such a good, faithful servant of the Lord. Right? I mean, truly, if you evaluate this, it's despite Jonah and his errors and his weakness, despite him, that God still worked. You might say Jonah's book is a good representation that despite the most reluctant preacher and a pretty rough sermon, God can still work. That's Jonah's testimony. I mean, Jonah here, with perhaps maybe very little love in his heart, probably reluctantly, he says, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. I mean, was that harsh? Did he say it in that kind of harsh tone? There's an exclamation point uh, in my Bible. Or was it half-hearted? Because he didn't even really want people to hear what he was saying. Or 40 days in judgment. There, I did it, God, okay? <laughs> well, Jonah, I don't think anybody other than the person right next to you heard that. Well, I did it, all right? And yet, again, reluctant, unloving preacher, a pretty rough sermon, and yet God, look what happens, verse 5. So the people of Nineveh, this must have shocked Jonah, I'm sure, believed God, proclaimed a fast, and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. This picture is a widespread repentance in the city as a response to hearing the word of the Lord. And notice what their repentance included. It says in verse 5, they believed, not Jonah. Do you see that again? They didn't believe Jonah because they heard God speak to them. They believed God. That is that what they'd been doing prior to this was wrong. They believed, hey, we've been wrong in our thinking and we've been wrong in our ways, but God is real. And God's just told us the right way. God's just told us that we are wrong and that we deserve to be punished for our wrongdoing. And they now believe what God is saying, even to the point they believe that God was going to judge them and that they were going to face judgment and that they would no longer ignore the voice of God, but they now accepted and believed what God was saying and what God would do. And as well, we see in verse 5, they humbled themselves. It says they proclaimed a fast and put on sackcloth. So they were denying themselves the, the, the privilege of enjoying you know, food, denial of themselves in humility, putting on sackcloth. It was like burlap sack, if you would, that they would, this is a very cultural thing they would do to afflict themselves, to kind of awaken themselves to a sense of greater consciousness. And these were acts, practically, of humbling oneself before the Lord. To cease from comfort and self-indulgence and take an attitude of humility and grief before God. And these were the components of their genuine repentance. They stopped believing and doing what was wrong. They started being aware and awakened to what God would say is right. And they're humbling themselves in the sight of the Lord. And notice the repentance was, was spreading, it says, from the greatest to the least. That is across all age groups. Across all socioeconomic statuses, the rich and the poor, the, you know, the common people, the influential people, there's this widespread repentance. It didn't matter who it was, and that's because repentance is something that we all need universally. In fact, Jesus, when he came and first began preaching, it tells us in Mark 1, one of the first statements that Jesus made was he said that the kingdom of God is at hand, and he said, repent. And believe the gospel. Jesus was the first one. God incarnate, loving, gracious, kind. He said, the kingdom of God's at hand. You have to repent. 
Turn from what you've been doing wrong. And he says, believe the gospel. Believe you need to be saved. So we see this message of repentance throughout the word of God. In Acts 2, Peter's proclaiming the guilt and sin of those who had lived very religiously. They were going through observances of, yeah, well, we go sit in synagogue every weekend. We listen to what the word of God says when it's open and we say a few of the prayers. And, and Peter's rebuking these individuals who were religious but had rejected their need of salvation from Christ. And it tells us this, that when they heard Peter proclaim these things, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter, men and brethren, what shall we do? When they heard the word of God, what do we do? What do we do before God? And Peter said to them, repent and let everyone be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins that you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So there's this repentance that begins to break out there in verse 5. And look what it carries to verse 6. The word of then came to the king of Nineveh. And he arose from his throne and laid aside his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. So even the king, the highest political leader in the land, at this point, upon hearing the word of God, he's now broken in spirit, begins to humble himself. It says he arose from his throne set aside his robe, that is his royal robes, the identification that he was king, that he was in charge, that his will would be done. He sets that aside, changes into sackcloth and ashes, picturing a powerful man dethroning himself so that he can acknowledge, I'm not the king. There is a king that we should all be in submission to. And now he's humbling himself, setting aside his rights to acknowledge the authority of God. And what an awesome thing to see a ruler doing something like that. What a beautiful demonstration. And you can tell, watch this, you can tell his personal experience with God and the word of God is real because it's going to influence his politics. Look at this, verse 7. So he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king. Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink water, but let every beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily to God. Yes, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who can tell if God will turn and relent and turn away from his fierce anger so that we may not perish? So the king as he has this encounter with God, issues now a royal decree. He signs some legislation and puts it forth that everybody in society should start to humble themselves and fast and repent from their sin and turn to God in national prayer, turning from sin, asking for God's mercy. He says, we need to cry mightily, verse 8, cry mightily to God. That is urgently, he puts forth a call for a national prayer meeting. And he says, everyone, begin to pray and beg God for mercy. And he exhorts his citizens, notice, to turn away from their evil ways and their violence. And we see here, notice, that this society, turn away from evil ways and verse 8, violence. This society, the, own, the king himself, was known, even by their national leader, as being a people who were very wicked in their evil ways and practices and who had become very, very violent in their dealings. And I'll tell you, it seems whenever a people or a nation or a society is on the edge of the judgment of God, 
that these tend to be characterizing marks. That those people become very evil in their ways and they also become incredibly violent in their actions towards fellow humanity. Barbaric and cruel. You look at Genesis chapter 6 before God brought the great flood upon the world in the days of Noah and before that time the people were characterized by it says their thoughts were evil continually and it says there was great violence in the earth. And these unfortunately tend to be characterizing marks before the judgment of God comes and let me just say indeed I think this message is greatly needed in our American culture. Because I see a lot of parallels. People going in evil ways and violence constantly perpetuating itself in our culture. And the same things that we see taking place in Nineveh happening in the days of Sodom and Gomorrah in a parallel we see happening which makes us have to wonder where do we stand as a country in regards to the judgment of God. And what we deserve for the things that we're doing. It says the king's reasoning, verse 9, for these things as he calls for repentance. He says, who can tell? He says, repent, pray. Who can tell if God will turn and relent from his fierce anger so that we may not perish? So the king was hopeful that possibly God might be merciful to them. That if they were willing to humble themselves as a people and change and notice the king takes ownership of their error and sinful ways. He's not making excuses. He's not dismissing what they've been doing wrong as a people. I mean, he is full on humbly admitting publicly their error. He says, we have provoked the fierce anger of God. He says, we need to ask God to turn away his fierce anger. He's basically saying, look, we deserve what's about to come upon us. He's not pulling punches here. He says, we've provoked the fierce anger of God and we deserve to perish. And if we do nothing and persist in our evil ways, God's going to judge us. But he says, who can tell if we sincerely repent and change and, and turn, maybe God will have mercy upon us. He's a merciful God. Maybe he'll spare us. The king was putting forth faith willing to believe that God's a God who forgives and offers second chances. And he becomes a voice in the culture to encourage people to confess their failures, to admit their sins, to change their ways, and believe that God's merciful if we do. And look what happens, verse 10. And God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way, and God relented from the disaster that he said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. So notice, God favorably honors their repentance. And here we see in verse 10, the people's repentance. And we see God's response to their repentance. The people's repentance is clearly declared in verse 10 by telling us that God saw their, look what it says, saw their works, that they turned away, it says, from their evil way. Again, their repentance was observable. It was seen in works. Outward working of a change of a way of their conduct, a change of heart and mind that brought a change in how they lived. They stopped doing the evil things that they were doing. They put an end to practices that were immoral and sinful and wrong. They turned away from those things. And hear the power of the language here. They turned away from their evil ways. 
They turned away. They went the opposite direction, began to live differently, and God took notice that was the verifiable proof that there was a true change inwardly. This is so important because true repentance, listen, has measurable fruit to it. True repentance is not saying, I'm sorry. True repentance is proving that you're sorry by changing and living different. It's observable. It's outwardly evident. It has proof to it. The Bible tells us in Luke 3 to bear forth fruits worthy of repentance. It's something seen. It's not something talked about. It's not, oh, I'm saying, I know it's, I know what I did is wrong. I know what well, Okay, if you know it's wrong, are you going to change or not? Because you can say you know it's wrong and tear up and cry about it. But that's not repentance till you change, till you do the opposite. Do you turn the other way? And look what God does when they repent. God's merciful response. It says God relented from the disaster that he said he would bring upon them and he did not do it. God retreats into his mercy and love and he chooses to forgive them and turn away his punishment. When they humbly turn from their sin, God responds with incredible mercy, again, revealing his nature. God does not enjoy judging people. God does not enjoy punishing. In fact, God looks for every reason to give people a reason to make him forgive, to, to have mercy upon them. He honors sincere repentance. He's looking for a reason to be able to have mercy. Joel 2, God says, Now therefore says the Lord, turn to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful slow to anger and great of kindness, and he relents from doing harm. In Jeremiah 18, Jeremiah says, that nation whom I've spoken, if they turn from evil, I will relent from the disaster I thought to bring upon it. That's the nature of God. Take all of what God's done, even with Jonah, just to try and spare these people that were lost because he wanted to show mercy upon them. And when they repented, God honored their repentance and we need to remember this not only for people that God loves and cares about, but we need to remember this for the heir of our own nation today. Because we are in a place morally and spiritually that is not good. I'm reminded of the words of Jesus in Matthew 12, 41. Jesus said this, The men of Nineveh will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And indeed, a greater than Jonah is here. What Jesus was saying to the Jews in that day is those people in Nineveh had minimal light and they believed and they repented and changed and turned towards God. And Jesus was saying to the Jewish people, you have God in flesh standing in front of you. They, repeat, they repented at Jonah's preaching and one greater than Jonah standing right in front of you. And I have to say, because it is utterly true, ladies and gentlemen, how much more, therefore, must America be guilty? The light that we have been shown as a nation. We have churches on every corner. Such a minimal amount of persecution from living for Christ freely as God's people. The proclamation of the gospel, the availability to light and truth, consider all the light that we've been given. And yet where we're at spiritually... You know, may God have mercy upon us. May God use his word and his work to wake up our nation and to make us realize that if we turn to God, that there's still time. 
for God to show maybe mercy, maybe another wave of revival before his ultimate judgment comes, that souls might be saved, that there might be one more move of God's Spirit among us. Shall we stand together and pray?